Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Karen Young, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a specialist on the political economy of the Middle East. Karen and I will discuss political economic trends in the Gulf, how the region may be feeling about the transition to a Biden administration, and the prospects for reconciling the rift within the GCC in the waning weeks of the Trump administration. My conversation with Karen Young begins after this short break, including a few suggestions for your holiday reading list. There is the expectation from the Biden team that they want to re-enter the JCPOA. There's also the expectation that there will be a reset and re-evaluation of the U.S.-Saudi bilateral relationship. And so I think the, the Biden administration needs to very firmly, very early, explain what that reset with Saudi Arabia means. The first six months of 2021 are are the most dicey in terms of needing to have clear lines of communication, clear established policies, whether it's approbation of Saudi Arabia or reset of the relationship, um, and intentionality about what the Biden team wants to see happen in the relationship with Iran. And those are all moving pieces and subject to a whole lot of externalities in the region, which clearly in the outgoing Trump administration is trying to throw a little bit of sand in the gears on. That was Karen Young of the American Enterprise Institute, who will be joining us shortly. Let me first offer my suggestions for what I consider required holiday season reading in anticipation of a Joe Biden presidency. In my view, the best and indeed essential places to start to understand former Vice President and Senator Joe Biden are the books by Biden himself. Promises to Keep, written in 2007, and Promise Me Dad, written in 2017. Now, political autobiographies are a mixed lot, but these two books are really among the best, candid and insightful, and in Biden's own voice. Among the many takeaways is how Biden's sense of service to country and deep love of family and friends helped him manage the painful tragedies of losing his first wife and daughter in a car crash in 1972 and his son Bo to cancer in 2015. You also get a sense of how Biden's determination and spirit of both compromise and collegiality marked his leadership in the Senate and then as vice president. Both books cover Biden's deep involvement and commitment to Iraq, which he described as, quote, arguably the most frustrating issue of my 40-year career in foreign relations. Despite that frustration, Biden never gave up on Iraq. He's described it as a, quote, noble cause. And if passed his prologue, he is likely, as president, to maintain that commitment. Biden believed that a loss in Iraq was a loss for the United States, and he dug in rather than stepped back to help set U.S. policy toward Iraq on a better course during the Bush and Obama administrations. Biden also oversaw the successful U.S.-led international coalition to defeat the Islamic State, 
which set up a caliphate in large parts of Iraq and Syria in 2014. I have argued elsewhere that that is one of the most successful and in my score underrated examples of recent US diplomatic and military leadership with bipartisan consensus across two administrations. And at a time when many observers were fretting that the US was stepping back in regional affairs. Chuck Hagel, who served with Biden on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and then as Secretary of Defense during the Obama-Biden administration, told me that, quote, Biden's misgivings about the Iraq war didn't stop him from trying in the interests of our country to reset our Iraq policies after the Bush administration's disastrous lack of post-war planning. The U.S. was in Iraq in a big way, Hagel said, our people were dying there, and a failed Iraq would be a nightmare for U.S. policy in the region. Biden knows Iraq, Hegel added, and its leaders as well or better than just about anyone. Now, in addition to the books by Biden himself, which would, would and should be at the top of any reading list on our next president, two other exceptional books are Evan Osnos's recent book on Joe Biden, called Joe Biden, and Richard Ben Kramer's classic, What It Takes, about the 1988 presidential campaign. Now to our conversation today with Karen Young. She is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where she specializes in the political economy of the Middle East, with special focus on the states of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Karen is also a must-read columnist for El Monitor. She teaches at the Foreign Service Institute at the Department of State, and before joining AEI was Senior Resident Scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute. She was also a Research and Visiting Fellow at the Middle East Center of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and an Assistant Professor of Political Science at the American University of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. My conversation with Karen Young begins now. Karen, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. There's a lot of diplomatic activity in the Gulf in the waning days of the Trump administration. Secretary Pompeo returned from the region last week or so. Both White House advisor Jared Kushner and Assistant Secretary of State David Schenker are planning trips to the region in the coming days. On the agenda of all of these trips has been healing the rift in the Gulf among the GCC states, as well as Iran and the normalization agreements with Israel. We also, in the last few days, had the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Now, the Financial Times has an interesting piece that Saudi Arabia is looking to close the file on the rift with Qatar as a gift to the incoming Biden administration. Do you see prospects for healing the Gulf Rift in the coming weeks? And how does the killing of uh, Fakhrizadeh factor into the mood in the region? Well, I, I saw that FT reporting and I, and I think it was, um, it was probably a good analysis in that it emphasized that I think we're seeing a bit of daylight between Saudi and Emirati policy, particularly on the, on the relationship with Qatar. Um, if it is indeed true that Mohammed bin Salman is anxious to 
um, either give a parting gift to Trump or to create some sort of good faith gesture toward the incoming Biden administration, um, creating some relaxation, not a total relaxation, but some relaxation of um, the blockade and the cessation of, of flights and, and the ability of Gulf citizens to travel between the Qatari and Saudi border um, would be welcome. And it would be welcome by both administrations in that Trump could claim another Middle East victory um, and Saudi Arabia could say they were on a path towards reconciliation. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting read in the story and, it, and it's, it's very likely to be true. Um, it's troubling in that, again, this point of increasing daylight between the UAE and Saudi Arabia, whereas the UAE, I don't think, is so inclined um, to move on any relaxation of, um, of the tension between uh, the Emirates and, and Qatar right now. Um, and this, I think, by extension means that there could be some divergence as well on, um, on how the Gulf Arab states are reading the dynamic with Iran and uh, with not one but two assassinations apparently over the last few days, um, really sort of, uh, of you know, an escalation of tensions. And, and so we've seen reports from the UAE and Bahrain calling the assassinations, um, you know, unwelcome and that, you know, we need to calm uh, the environment. So that was very interesting. Um, the other, you know, what the outgoing Trump administration is trying to do in this kind of last minute visits to the region is also a little perplexing to me at least. Um, we know that Jared Kushner's trip, it's been reported that he's um, traveling as well with Brian Hook, who of course has been the special envoy or uh, managing of the Iran file in the State Department, but as well, he's supposedly traveling with Adam Bowler, who's the head of the um, development finance um, entity. And this, this to me is, is interesting. Um, and, and I don't know what, especially Jared Kushner's motivations are. I mean, I'm sure he would like to claim um, some credit for another Middle East breakthrough. Um, Avi Berkowitz is also apparently in the, um, um, in the entourage traveling. Um, but he also might be doing some, some personal diplomacy. And that to me, I think is a little bit um, more troubling. And, and any kind of side deals that are made, you know, whether it's trying to relax um, the, the relationship, the Gulf um, Quartet relationship towards Qatar, or if it's to um, cement further um, investment relationships with Israel and the Gulf Arab states. I imagine that that would be Jared Kushner's priority or one of his priorities would be to see if he could make the same sorts of openings or, um, you know, create letters of intent between investment authorities in, um, in Qatar or Saudi Arabia even. Um, with Israeli entities. So that, that's something to keep an eye on as well. Karen, you wrote uh, for a monitor while back that there needs to be a channel between the Gulf leaders and the Biden transition team, especially on Iran. How does the Gulf view the incoming Biden administration? Are leaders there uh, concerned about a, a shift to renewable energy, a renewal of the JCPOA, more emphasis on human rights, 
all of the above, uh, something else. Tell us how you're seeing that transition and how the Gulf is seeing that transition. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important um, issue that I hope the Biden team is taking into close consideration. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, right? In any transition, that's normal, but especially right now. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's normal to expect that there will be some formalization of these relationships, and that is very healthy, that it will be less about the personal diplomacy and more about going through um, official channels that, that um, you could expect a, a, a State Department under Tony Blinken to, um, to have the voice of the president, but also to insist on um, official avenues and, and modes of communication. And that's a good thing. The Gulf states know that and they will, they will get in line. What's more, I guess, risky, especially in the first six months of 2021, is that uh, you know, there is the expectation from the Biden team that they want to re-enter the JCPOA. Um, there's also the expectation that there will be a reset and reevaluation of the US-Saudi bilateral relationship. And so I think the, the Biden administration needs to very firmly, very early, explain what that reset with Saudi Arabia means, to draw very clear red lines about what will be accepted or tolerated and not, specifically around Saudi Arabia's recent use or targeting of its uh, civilians on US territory. I think that will be one of the key points at which the Biden administration will say this you cannot do and there will be repercussions for it. And the Biden White House needs to um, guide the congressional punishment or disciplining of Saudi Arabia that's sure to come and to then make clear what the White House policy will be in relation to whatever happens in Congress. Saudi Arabia needs to hear that early and they need to hear it early simply because we're running into a year in which, um, you know, the, the financial situation, the financial vulnerabilities of Saudi Arabia are quite stark at all of the oil exporters, but particularly in Saudi. Um, and this is also a period running up to elections in Iran in June or May, June. Um, and so, you know, all of these parties need to have a little bit of a template, a little bit of a map of where the new administration intends to go, how fast it intends to move. On the Iranian file, even if you enter the JCPOA, they're gonna want some leverage and some room to be able to negotiate further, particularly on, um, on Iran's missile capacity, for example. So they're gonna to need to hold some carrots back. Um, and so I don't think we're going to see um, the release of oil sanctions um, very quickly, but Iran is going to need access to finance. And so ways that the Biden administration can facilitate that without using U.S. dollars will be very important. And that's to strengthen any kind of reformist elements and give them a chance at another election. Um, and also to, to give a signal to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular that that there will be more negotiations and that they will, if not have a seat at the table, they're gonna see what the objectives are very, very clearly and very early. Um, so we can talk about what some of those financial incentives and lifelines might look like, but I think in general, the, the first six months of 2021 are, are the most dicey in terms of needing to have clear lines of communication, clear established policies, whether it's approbation of Saudi Arabia or reset of the relationship, um, and intentionality about what 
the Biden team wants to see happen in the relationship with Iran. And those are all moving pieces and subject to a whole lot of externalities in the region, which clearly in the outgoing Trump administration is trying to throw a little bit of sand in the gears on. Are leaders in the region concerned at all about the Biden campaign's emphasis on renewable energy? The way that oil markets are right now um, are really creating a setback for the U.S. shale energy, um, shale production. And so that's not so much of a threat to the Gulf oil producers anymore. Um, Oil prices are very low. They'll probably, their revenues are going to plateau by 2035 for certain. Um, And so, you know, the the Gulf state Saudi Arabia in particular sees itself as, you know, a low cost producer, um, a relatively cleaner producer of oil. Um, than, than other, um, other competitors. And so this, this is an advantage that they have and they will keep. If the Biden administration really makes a push for clean energy domestically, yeah, that's good in the Gulf producers' longer term future, but it nece- doesn't necessarily change the structure of what that market is going to look like. Um, you know, it may be a boost to them in terms of market share in the next two to five, maybe even 10 years, but it doesn't change the direction they're going in. Um, it also will take some time to implement. And we could expect that for the shale producers in the U.S. that survive this terrible year or two years of low oil prices as we recover from the pandemic and, and especially demand picks up in Asia, um, that there will be exceptions. Um, if there are restrictions on fracking, on flaring, then you know, some states, particularly states like New Mexico, will probably lobby and lobby successfully for a little bit more time. I guess the, the short answer is it's, it's good for the Gulf oil producers um, in this kind of short to medium term to see more energy regulation in the US, to see kind of um, the hollowing out of the shale industry but it doesn't necessarily change the longer term revenue projection of of where they're going. As you mentioned, this has been a really tough time for Gulf economies. And you mentioned some of the structural challenges, low oil prices, the impact of COVID-19, as well as bloated government budgets. How do you see the economies of the region adapting to these trends over the next year? So 2021 will be a bad year um, as we kind of try to recover across across the Middle East. And actually non uh, or oil importers are gonna recover a little more quickly perhaps um, than the exporters or at least what a lot of banks are projecting right now. Um, So we're seeing pretty substantial fiscal deficits um, and then seeing a bit of a recovery back to 2019 levels by 2022. Um, those are the forecasts, but but 2021 is going to continue to be a very rough year in that um, Gulf states will be relying on debt to meet their kind of their spending obligations. They will be drawing down on reserve assets, um, and they will be cutting cutting budgets where we can. And they've already been doing that, I, and you know pretty significantly. We've seen capex across the board um, really being slashed. Um, this means that you know governments are not going to be spending on on big contracting and, and construction projects, um, and that will continue. Now, where else can they create alternate sources of revenue? Well, tax is the new thing in the Gulf, and so the implementation of the value-added tax 
in the UAE and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia has, has been uh, monumental. Um, and Saudi Arabia, of course, tripling that tax to 15% in July. Um, so, you know, that doesn't make up the hole that they have dug, um, but it means that the politics of, of, of the fiscal choices of these states has changed profoundly. Now, for the weaker economies, like Bahrain and Oman, um, they face a, an especially tough year. And this is because of the burden of debt repayment, um, their risk in terms of sovereign, sovereign repayment, which is you know, a, a calculation that, um, that banks make, is, um, is pretty substantial. Now, compared to regional peers, Iraq is in a much more difficult position. Pakistan is in a very difficult position. Um, but Bahrain and Oman are up there, along with Egypt. Karen, what are your views of the limits and constraints in an economic sense of normalization between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain? I know you've written about this for uh, El Monitor, and if you could tell us what you see as the sectors with the most promise and where normalization may be overhyped in these early honeymoon days. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think um, 2021 will be a, a tourism year for these new new ties. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, expectation of Israelis buying package tours to uh, to go to the Gulf, to go to Dubai in particular um, in the spring. And hotels are launching Passover packages and. Um, and friends are telling me that they've already seen uh, Hasidic families walking around Dubai Mall, which just is uh, mind-blowing. But, um, but that's, that's an area of people-to-people -people ties and you know, basic tourism that even within these COVID restrictions has already begun. And so I would expect that to expand. Now more in the business sectors, of course, the jewelry market is one, the gold and diamond trade will be an important uh, area of, um, of shared investment and, um, and business growth. But um, we've seen these commitments, particularly in investment funds that uh, are focused on technology. And so you've got basically funds that are taking on wealth from the UAE in particular, where investors are sort of pooling into these funds, uh, which are Israeli funds um, committed to uh, investing in technology across the region. And that's, that's great. And we'll see more of that. And we'll see more of that in Bahrain and the fintech sector, especially. Um, but that's not necessarily a job creator. That's not necessarily um, something that happens, I guess, to, to increase people-to-people -people ties or, uh, or shared ownership necessarily of firms. That's a bit more you know, on, the, on the portfolio side rather than in the direct investment. So that, um, that would be my expectation where, the, where you know, most of the money is moving, at least for the next few years. I think it'll be a little bit harder to have a 100% Israeli-owned um, business in the Gulf or vice versa. It will happen, but those things will, will take more time. In terms of the, the collaboration on food security um, or uh, certainly on, uh, on weapons technology and drones, things like that, um, uh, surveillance technologies, those, those things were there already. They will grow. But this is where I think a little bit of the overhype is. Um, you know, a lot of those connections existed and functioned just fine. Um, and how much do the Gulf states really want those relationships and those shared technologies out in the open? Maybe that's counterproductive for them in some ways. 
Aaron, you talked a little about non, or you mentioned non-oil importers. Egyptian President um, al-Sisi has had some success over the past five years in addressing Egypt's economic challenges, including cutting some subsidies, which have been difficult for many Egyptian citizens. How do you see Egypt's economic trajectory over the next year or so? So as I mentioned, Egypt falls into that category of sovereign repayment risk. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the region from Iraq to Pakistan, um, or even, you know, looking at Morocco, the North African countries, um, you know, Egypt is, is um, certainly one of those countries with a uh, high debt burden, um, not a lot of government revenue coming in. There's a very low tax base, very poor tax collection, or, you know, bureaucratic capacity to enforce tax rules. Um, and certainly this persistent problem, not just in Egypt, but Egypt suffers from it, of, you know, the, of the military and the government uh, having a stranglehold on a lot of sectors, and a lot of industries. So that's really their challenge. It's always been their challenge and it continues to be so. Egypt has good access to external finance. They are again in IMF negotiations for a $1.6 billion loan package. And they also receive a good amount of loan support from Europe, um, from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I think there's a 1.2 billion Euro loan facility underway. So this is how they get by. Um, but in the long term, it's, you know, it doesn't help productivity. It doesn't really help boost what is most of the Egyptian economy, which is very informal. It's, you know, kind of mom and pop enterprises that don't pay taxes, but also don't get a lot of benefits from the state. Um, and we're seeing what a lot of analysts, um, which I'm reading right now, or I'm reading, are talking about the similarities of this period in Egypt right now to the end of 2010, a decade ago, in the beginning of the Arab Spring where we're seeing an increase in repression, um, attacks on journalists and, and those kind of free thinkers in society, um, and certainly not a whole lot of good news on the economic front. Um, Egypt has not been able to give a lot of stimulus to these kind of unofficial or um, gray market enterprises. Um, and so this feeds that discontent and that sense of, um, of, of being you know, left behind. So that's, that's something that I would be pretty concerned about. Now, of course, the relationship across the Middle East between the oil importers and the oil exporters um, is also important. When we think about remittance flows from the Gulf to countries like Egypt, as the Gulf continues to contract, uh, 2021, as we said, will be a really tough year. That means that Egyptians who may have been working in the Gulf have probably lost their jobs, have had to return home. Um, and what we're seeing in the UAE, at least in terms of visa restrictions, is they are not encouraging um, Arab nationals to come back, either as tourists or as, uh, as workers. So it's going to be a couple of years before that employment market in the Gulf really opens up again. And so for your average kind of low-income Egyptian worker who is maybe working in the tourism sector in the Gulf or maybe even in construction or contracting, um, the possibilities for a new job are probably two years away. Um, and so that feeds a lot of the discontent and, um, and hardship at home in Egypt, um, which, you know, is a, is a burden to social stability. Karen, thank you for this conversation today. Really learned a lot. And, uh, and thank you for your many contributions to our monitor. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
We will be right back with a few closing remarks and takeaways from my conversation just now with Karen Young after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnists reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Two quick takeaways from my conversation just now with Karen Young. First, Karen makes a strong case that the Biden administration, as an early priority, should explain what its policy towards Saudi Arabia will be, including parameters and guidelines to calm uncertainty and as part of a reset on what will likely be a new diplomatic push on Iran. Second, Karen noted that there is daylight between the UAE and Saudi Arabia in healing the divisions with Qatar, that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman may have an interest in closing this account, or at least showing progress on this account by perhaps loosening travel restrictions, including for religious pilgrimage to the kingdom. Karen sees this as a possible twofer for MBS, a parting gift for the Trump administration and a welcoming gift for the Biden administration. On this topic, if you haven't done so already, you might want to check out my interview last week with Qatar's ambassador to the United States, Michelle Althani, on the prospects for healing the rift within the GCC. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>